This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast, and we're back with another episode of The Professor and the Practitioner. I'm joined with my good friend, Dr. Whitney Martinko, and we are excited to be talking about all the things that are happening in the world of preservation on both of our ends. Um, It's been a little while since we talked last, so um, what are you teaching right now? And more to the point, what are your students interested, confused, excited by? What's going on in the world of The Professor? Hi, Nick. Good to see you. Good to see everyone or, or be on on a podcast with everyone this morning. So yeah, teaching, that's been taking up a lot of my time. It has been a while. This semester, I'm teaching a course uh, for graduate students. We are curating a show at the University Art Gallery. We're focusing on Doc's Thrash. He was a Black artist born in Georgia, but came to Philadelphia. Uh, in the 1920s and had a full career here as an artist through the 1960s when he passed away. And Villanova owns five paintings of Doc's thrashes. He's known for printmaking and shows have often focused on his prints. They were done through the WPA. And in fact, they featured a lot of images of life in cities, black life in cities, immigrant life in cities, But we're focusing in on these paintings and thinking about what we might learn by focusing in on his paintings, which are much more, you might look at them and say, oh, those are fine art, they're landscape, they're they're sort of classical um, paintings. But part of the reason I got interested in Doc's Thrash, and this connects to our podcast, is because there's been a great effort here in Philadelphia within the last, I would say, five or so years to preserve one of Doc's Thrash's homes. Uh, It was a home he lived in later in his life. It's in a neighborhood called Sharswood. It's in, I guess I would say, uh, sort of North Philadelphia. It's west of Temple University for anyone who knows the city. And it's an area that's been hard hit by redevelopment by entities like Temple University and uh, private developers. But there's been a real focused effort coming, in fact, out of some Penn Preservation students to preserve this house that was Doc's Thrashes. And um, they've a developer who wants to work to preserve the house is is working with them. So it's really cool to have an art show that came out of my knowledge of the city and my interest in the work that they're doing to preserve the Doc's Thrash home. And so what... What's the idea for reuse of the building? Is it historic house museum? Is it um, what, what? How are they gonna? How are they gonna use the structure? Yeah. So my sense is that it is a it's a, a private developer. I think that it might be the might the plan might be for it to be. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think that I love, I love that like an activated use. It's, um, you know, uh, 
House museums are great, but I'm not sure we need more of them. No, um, I don't think and, that is part of the plan at all. <laughs> although what's interesting is, and you do see this now, that there's this great renewed focus on telling the full story of American history and interpreting African-American history and women's history and all these different diverse aspects of the American story. But there's been sort of interestingly a push to like then create house museums for some of these sites. And sometimes I'm like, oh, no, like I, I, I worry that 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 we create unsustainable models because we're trying to make sure that we're telling that full story. Yes. But that that model itself doesn't always work so well. So I love the idea of embracing the story, but coming up with sustainable models um, for it. Um you know, because yeah. the, the house museum model is, is tough no matter what story you're telling. Exactly. And I think that that's a great example of how it's not just that we're adding more voices or more examples to a, a model, as you point out, that might not be looking so sustainable right now, but that these are these are groups that are really innovating with forms of preservation, right? And really thinking about um, how can these spaces be used and how can the legacy of preserving somebody like Doc's thrash as an artist actually lead us to new forms of community use or new forms of preservation, perhaps that really, as you say, activate that legacy in a meaningful way, right? It's not just about, okay, he was an artist, let's preserve this house, but like, how can we preserve that legacy in a more meaningful use of the space? While also, of course, thinking about, you know, how, how financially sustainable would it be to, you know, simply have a publicly owned building, right? In a city, that city, you know, municipal government is struggling to fill potholes, let alone provide arts and culture, uh, cultural services. And that actually brings me to my, my second class that I'm teaching, which is an undergraduate course on the history of Philadelphia, where we look a lot at a lot of interesting uh, preservation history, both head on and just in the nature of the sites that we talk about and cover. And I know you've been doing a lot of work with thinking about municipal properties, right? And thinking about how, what do cities owe to citizens when they own historically significant sites that maybe have gone underappreciated? Yeah, it's a big challenge. I think that, you know, kind of to your point about like trying to fill potholes. And so the question is, you know, how much effort and energy are they going to put on historic structures that they own or that they may be getting rid of. I mean, just this week, as I was sharing with you here back here in Maryland, um, you know, we at Preservation Maryland um, suggested to the city of Hagerstown in Western Maryland that they should document their historic um, ballpark municipal stadium before they demolish it. Um, and we didn't even really take the hard line that they shouldn't demolish it, but it was uh, the earliest iteration of it was built in the 30s. It was a Negro League stadium at one point. There were portions of it that burned at different times, and there's been reconstructions. And so it's, you know, it is a an evolution of a structure. Um, and we just said, you know, before it goes, we should really document it, take pictures, measure drawings, see if there's pieces of it that should be retained or reused. Um, and the response was basically no, this is, you know, we, we, we don't need to do that. There's nothing historic here. And, and that actually becomes a challenge too, particularly when you're talking about layered history. I think people think when it comes to a historic structure, unless it's a pristine, a perfect example of what it was when it was first built, it is no longer historic. So we got a lot of pushback on, well, there was a fire there in the, in the 60s. 
And and, and and I hate to tell people that something built in the 1960s is eligible for the National <laughs> Register. Um, yes. Something built in 1972, technically. Right. We're is, into the 70s now, right? Yes. We are into uh, shag preservation, um, which I, I need to create that that organization, the Society for the sounds Preservation like a, of, of Shag. Yes. Yeah. That sounds like a good hashtag social media <laughs> campaign, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, but so that... You know, kind of you can talk about it in a lot of different ways, but municipalities thinking about their responsibilities just to just to document, not at, let alone save and preserve. Um, and, you know, the way I put it is when you go through demolition review and sort of what's coming next, there's a whole review when it comes to, you know, is the stormwater going to be handled? Is there, you know, going to be dust control or all those sorts of things? Could be another box that says, have we documented it? Do we know what happened? Do we at least have decent photos of it? Yeah, I don't think that that's asking too much. Um, but it's interesting that the knee jerk reaction is no, we don't have time for something like that. We don't want to be right. stopped by that. Um, and, you know, it's incumbent on preservation groups to step up and say, hey, wait a second, there's a better path forward. Um, and, um, you know, that that remains a big challenge. And I think, again, a big part of it, um, and I'm, I don't know if you've seen this as well, but is sort of this focus on the pristine and the perfect. Yes. And if it's not perfect or, well, there was a portion of it rebuilt, so it's not it's no longer historic. Um, that becomes a real issue. Um, and I think within the world of preservation, whether you're a practitioner or a professor, you recognize the value of layered history. But I think the right. general public still sees it as sort of black and white, either I it's pristine is, historic or it's not. That is so true. And part of it, you know, I think there's the practical reason for that, which is that local registers, particularly, again, I'm most familiar with Philadelphia is that the sort of, you know, the check boxes are often really related to physical, you know, integrity, right? Architectural integrity. And sure, there are boxes for sort of cultural significance or historical significance, but I think then that gets us to this bigger picture, right? The not so practical, maybe the intellectual or the popular understanding of, okay, well, if this is a site that is just culturally significant, then why do we need the building, right? If, if it's not the building that has integrity, if this is just a site where something happened, well, why do we need the structure, right? Is preservation the right way to maintain that cultural history, right? Or popular memory of that? And, you know, I guess the answer is that it's not always preservation, right? It isn't the only means, but I do think that, preservation advocates, and you know, I can include myself in this, I'm not casting any stones, but we all need to be better at talking in, in plain terms and convincing terms about the importance of architectural structures that aren't pristine, right? Like what work does the physical structure do, even if it's not pristine and tied to 1910? And I think layered history is absolutely something that's so important. Yeah. Right. But I, I think it just the, the public perception needs to catch up. And I think mm -hmm. that we have, you know, I, I often talk about in preservation, like these headwinds that we have against us. We have headwinds of being perceived as elitist. We have headwinds being mm -hmm. perceived as, you know, 
only focused on the sites associated with white culture and you know mm -hmm. the wealthy and we there's just these different headwinds that we're constantly pushing back against and even if we really have embraced a different perspective on preservation in our organization there's still the public perception of no no this is what you are this is the box you fit in one of the jokes right. i tell or sort of my tales of woe depending on which way you look at it <laughs> is talking to a foundation and pitching them on what we were doing. And they said, oh, no, 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 we don't do um, preservation. We do community development. And it was like, oh. But those you know, are, because, yeah, those should because, be the same things, right? Yeah, and like, that's how I see our work. But right. we were put into a different box by the foundation because that those headwinds. And so I think that there's that, the headwinds of public perception on what is historic and what isn't, which really, you know, is part and parcel of this whole question of how municipalities preserve things because yes. if they don't perceive it as historic or it was built within their lifetime, then mm -hmm. it can't possibly be historic. Um, and I think, you know, if there's one theme in PreserveCast over the past, I don't know, six to eight months, it's that the issue of integrity and in the National Register is perhaps the biggest challenge facing yes. the the industry. Um, and I heard, I forget where I saw it. I can't claim it as my own, but I, I heard someone at one point say it's not an integrity Olympics. I love and, that. Yeah. <laughs> and like that needs, I need to, I don't have any tattoos, but I feel like that needs to be my tattoo is like, it is not an integrity Olympics. Yes. And the integrity Olympics is what gets us here. It's what right. gets us to a place where we're not going to document a structure that has evolved over time because it's not perfect and therefore not historic. And I'm curious if you see that elsewhere in other municipalities where they're like, oh, well, it, you know, it, they, they changed this part of the building. So it's no longer historic. We don't really need to honor that anymore. Yes. And I feel like that is, for me, that's where we see a lot of the challenges. If it is a pure, perfectly restored 18th century structure, very hard to make the case that you should knock it over. Right. Um, you know, municipalities are like, okay, begrudgingly sort of figure out how to deal with it. But if it is a hodgepodge of things or, it is associated with um, some minority group that had to evolve over time. And the building isn't this perfect example of what it was in 1910. It's right. much easier to look the other way, I think. Yes, I agree. Although here in Philadelphia, you can have you can name all the perfectly preserved great buildings from the 19th century that are demolished with out any demo review or anything. So, you know, I wish I could I wish I could say that we were forcing Philadelphia to deal with structurally sound and interesting buildings. Unfortunately, we're not. But I think that the the flip side of preserving, say, the quote-unquote pristine buildings, which of course are never unchanged, right? It's just this popular perception that they are somehow unchanged. Sure. That the flip side of that is, is that when those are preserved, it sets this bar and, and continues this popular perception that to put a building on a register is to freeze it, right? Is to create trouble for owners or community users, right? And it it promotes this idea of preservationists being paint police, right? And so it, it's like it, it, it is both setting an expectation for what should have happened to a building in the past, but also what will be possible for a building in the future, which I think is really frustrating. And I know, you know, a lot of, um, there's been a lot of talk in Philadelphia for, you know, what we need is a different, different levels of preservation, right? Which is sure, funny because are. we're, 
we're basically getting to where the British were, what, 50 years yes. ago, right? Let's say, which <laughs> exactly. is normally the case, right? right? We just, we, right. We, 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 you know, half a century later, we figure out, you know, it's interesting. They had it right. Um, and this is where I, go ahead. No, yeah, I go. I, I was, this is where I really think that preservation has to adopt sustainability as a key aspect of the work that we do, right? Sustainability, not just environmental sustainability, but really thinking about sustainability um, as, as economic and as social, right? And to me, the social sustainability aspect paired with environmental and economic sustainability is where we can get beyond this idea of either something, a building is, uh, has great integrity right? Or it doesn't, and we're just preserving it because something culturally significant happened here, right? Sustainability to me is what makes the case for the material or the architectural, right? Being important, not just because it's either pristine or not, either because it has integrity or it doesn't, but it's getting at this connection between people and, and community and culture and the physical, right? The environmental, the neighborhood. Um, sustainability to me is, is something that obviously there's been a lot of um, talk and support for sustainability, but I haven't seen it adapted as much in um you know, registers, right? Or criteria for, for registers. And I think I would hope to see more and more cities or uh, advocacy getting on board with sustainability as really truly being a, a framework for adapting some of these criteria. But again, it all flows from the feds because I forget what the number is. I'm going to make up a stat, but it's something mm -hmm. in the range of like 80 or 85% of local ordinances are just tied to the Secretary of the Interior standards, right? Mm -hmm. Because it is it is a huge undertaking to like figure out how you're going to do it yourself. Sure. So, so much of it is tied to the way the feds do it that unless we have federal reform on it, and this is sort of maybe my pessimistic side. I just right. I don't see I don't see the locals being like we're going to do this. We're going to champion it. We're going to come up with our right. own graded heritage system. Um, but some cities have, a, have, but yeah, it's it's a lot yeah. of work, right? And again, when it's when it's tied to local government, that is responsible for so many things, right? In in cities that are struggling after a pandemic, right? How, who is going to come fill these office buildings downtown, right? I can understand why there, when, when there are limited resources, why this gets put off, but I do. And here you, your pessimistic side came out. My optimistic side is going to come out that I think that this can solve some of the problems, right? Some of these bigger problems. It shouldn't just be like preservation in this little boxes, something that's about, you know, history, but that's something that can be a tool for sustainable development. As you said, you're, you're interested in community development. That's what preservation can be. And, um, so my, my optimistic side says that cities and townships should use preservation as a much more, uh, a, a, a bigger toolbox, right? Should sort of think of it as a bigger toolbox, build a bigger toolbox to solve some bigger urban problems. Well, while you're feeling optimistic, um, <laughs> let's let's pivot here for a second. And there's a lot of talk now and people are really kind of getting rolling on this conversation about what America 250 is going to look like. 250th right. anniversary of the founding of the United or the, the establishment of the United States in 1776, um, which is coming up in 2026. Um, so you know, 
you you have an interesting perspective given that you've written extensively on the history of preservation and how different commemorations and anniversaries, particularly 1876, impacted the way, and, and obviously Philadelphia played a big, big part in that, in the mm-hmm. celebration and everything, which clearly was a celebration at that point, TBD, about whether we're going to call this a commemoration or a celebration. But right. um, are you feeling just as optimistic about that? What, what, what are you feeling about um, America 250 hopes, dreams, concerns? What are you thinking? Oh, gosh. You know, I have struggled to get engaged with this commemoration slash celebration, whatever it will be. A lot of academic organizations that I'm a part of, whether they be journals or centers of study, have plans and works, right? And I think are coming up with a lot of interesting ways to address uh, the 250th anniversary all attending to, you know, how can we take a fresh look at the founding of the United States, think about where scholarship is, right? Bringing scholarship into public discourse. Obviously, there are a lot of scholars already doing this, but, you know, I think the challenge, and maybe this is why I've struggled to get engaged, we are making new arguments about the revolution, understanding things in new ways, bringing in voices, um, studying voices, analyzing voices and perspectives that have not been central. On the other hand, it does feel like a topic that gets so much attention in the popular imagination on a regular basis, apart from commemoration, that I see the energy spent on, you know, 250 as energy that I hope is not getting taken away from other topics, right? That might benefit from a little more sustained attention. So I don't know where preservation is or where, where your, you know, where your conversations are. Yeah. So I was, I was appointed by the governor to in here in Maryland to our commission. And, um, you know, I think we have started, I mean, we're just at the very beginning. A lot of us are kind of just feeling around in the dark for what this is going to look like and what we're going to do. But I think a lot of us feel as if this is an opportunity, the way we want to frame it, or some of us want to frame it is a exploration of what freedom means in America mm-hmm. and not really be so, fo- I mean, obviously grounding it in beginning the story of here's 1776 and here's all these different people and what freedom meant to them at that moment. Mm-hmm. and how America has struggled, um, achieved, failed, um, you know, everywhere in between uh, in terms of what freedom has looked like since then for different groups and how every every succeeding generation seems to have another struggle with what freedom is going to look like for the, the next marginalized group. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this idea of what is the meaning of freedom, how have we grappled with it, how have we succeeded, how have we failed – and how did that all start in 1776? I like that idea of sort of this bigger picture conversation around this this topic that a lot of people maybe have preconceived notions of what it means um, rather than just let's really dig into 1776. And I think for some states, they're going to have to talk things like that. I mean, you know, here in Maryland, we have obviously revolutionary history, but we don't really have big. We have one um, significant battle site um, that Preservation Maryland has been working on called St. George Island. But um, beyond that, you know, it's it's not like 
Pennsylvania where we have open clashes or, or New York for that right. matter, or, or some of the Southern campaign sites. And then as you get further out, you know, how is Iowa going to talk about America too? Right. Um, and so I, I do think kind of framing it around these bigger questions and engaging the public around that can be interesting. I'm curious what the, if we can keep this commemoration nonpartisan, um, yes. <laughs> given, given how partisan everything is and how, um, how that has, that has happened with a, a lot of different aspects of history and what that will look like, um, over the next four to five years. Um, so right. I think that this will be a, a subject of conversation moving forward for us, but, um, We'll, we'll plant a flag here to to continue talking about America 250. And obviously, Pennsylvania has a big, big aspect, big component. I'm sure Philadelphia will as well. Probably they perhaps do. one of the biggest. They do. And I think that many groups, even scholarly groups devoted to studying early America and the early United States are focused on legacy, right? What What are the ongoing questions and struggles for the the legacy of the American Revolution as a as an event, right? But also those those deeper questions, right? That you were thinking about, you know, freedom for whom, right? Who is still working to live up to some some security, right? Of the promise of of the principles of the revolution or of the founding documents of the United States. Um, I think addressing these questions and these histories, certainly in broader histories of revolution, right? Not hopefully we can, you know, study or commemorate 250 for the U.S. while thinking about it not being the only nation in the Atlantic world, right? That was grappling with these questions and issues. You know, did other places maybe do it better for a lack right. of a better term, right? Yeah. That that this and isn't why... just an American or US phenomenon, that these are there are revolutions happening um, you know, in Haiti and the Latin American republics, um, and France, right? All of these different places, Mexico in that moment. So is there any way for us to bring more of that hemispheric or global understanding of the history of that moment into conversations about legacies today? Yeah. And then I was going to jokingly say, and why does Canada exist? Right. <laughs> right. Like what, why, how come, how come Canada? Gotta um, bring Canada in. Gotta bring Canada in. Well, for, for preserve cast listeners, they'll know that we did a, an episode with a PhD candidate who I think actually now has his PhD, um, on the history of pizza. Um, he is the first like professional pizza historian. So, wow. um, which I'm, 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 I'm here for that. So yeah. um, before we come to our conclusion here, we normally talk about what we're reading. I know. Um, so are you are you reading anything? You're always reading something. What I'm always reading? reading something. I don't know what would be of interest uh, to to the readers, but I can talk a little bit about I've been on a real municipal history kick. So okay. I was reading an address that Andrew Crawford uh, wrote about. Um, Philadelphia municipal reform in 1910. This is a very short address. It's probably available publicly, um, but he's making the case for municipal form and, you know, sort of a progressive reformer thinking about making the city more efficient and 
uh, more green. He's a real advocate of parks. But part of the reason I was thinking about Crawford in this context is because he advocates for the preservation of historic buildings in Philadelphia Mm. as municipal sites. So arguing for the preservation of Stenton, which was James Logan's colonial seat built in the 1720s and 30s. Um, It is owned by the city of Philadelphia today. This is the same era when Bartram's Garden, uh, Bartram descendants, I believe donated it or maybe sold it uh, to the city of Philadelphia, I believe in the 1890s. So just reading Crawford and thinking about, I think, conversations and are thinking about municipal reform and efficiency and, you know, building utilities are often divorced from conversations about preservation in this moment. But I think that there's, there's some sort of, you know, maybe someday I'll write something about this, but I think there is this moment where municipalities see preservation as a way to improve the city, right? To move it forward, not just as a counterweight to progress. And I think that now we're probably in a moment where we're seeing cities, you know, municipalities, townships struggling to figure out how to keep up their, you know, what, what their legal, (laughs) their legal job is, right? To preserve these places. And this is where we see the emergence of nonprofits, right? Citizens groups, these sort of public private partnerships to fulfill the public duties of preservations of these sites. So anyway, Crawford reading uh, his address from a little over a century ago got me thinking through these issues. Uh, it, it put on my desk uh, a book that I've been wanting to read, which is uh, Ariane Liazos. Uh, she's a historian. She wrote Reforming the City, The Contested Origins of Urban Government, 1890 to 1930. So that's my up next reading, uh, yeah. my perspective reading. You've... you've uh... Well, the, the book sounds cool. I think you might be the only person currently reading Crawford's address. I think. Yes, not, I think that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, I always think that that's cool when you're like reading something and you're like, you know what? I think I'm the only person in the country right now reading this. This is something. Well, else. in my in my 25 students, hopefully. Well, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. Maybe not well, all 25. I was going to say, maybe I'm, like, I'm going to be optimistic. <laughs> maybe like 16 of them. How about that? Yeah, um, well. <laughs> maybe not a popular uh, reading recommendation, but maybe you, maybe listeners out there will have uh, will be inspired by by Crawford to read something about well, you, municipal if reform. The, if you send me the link, we'll stick it in the show notes. There you um, go. So I'm reading something a little more uh, popularly accessible, but that's okay. Right. <laughs> we're on we're on two different sides of this. I'm reading a book um, by Kendra Hall called Stories That Stick, and it oh, is cool. a sort of a crash course in how to incorporate storytelling into um, public speaking and the way in which you sort of make the case for causes and issues. Um, And so on the nonprofit side, I'm constantly just trying to think about how we better tell our story and how we engage people and how we make the case for things. Um, And basically it is a impassioned plea for, um, using stories to get people to care about issues, causes, you know, it can be companies, things like that. And so I am um, enthralled in the idea of becoming a better storyteller um, and kind of actually connects to what we talked to at the beginning of this is a good way to, to kind of conclude where you're talking about how we need to make the case for sort of the history beyond just the architecture sometimes and, and why places matter. 
And I don't know if there's really a better way of doing that than telling the story of a place um, because you can give all the reasons that it's the greenest building and how many pounds of carbon it's going to save and how it's good for this and that and the economic impact of it. Um, but, you know, maybe talking about, you know, the, the story of the people who lived there and the story of the little girl or the grandmother and the cookies they baked in the oven. And those are the things that connect with people. And that's the stuff that sticks. So that's what I'm that's, currently reading. That's great. And, you know, storytelling is a that's a hallmark. Many historians would say, I think of history. And I think that storytelling is one of those techniques that really can bring together history and preservation. And it leads me to a great book that is a popular recommendation. <laughs> uh, it's a historian, Ryan K. Smith. He is a historian uh, of, of architecture. He just wrote a book about cemeteries in Richmond, but he wrote a book called Robert Morris's Folly. And it's a book that he very deliberately adopts storytelling and says that architectural historians can use storytelling as a way to um, you know, maybe write more engagingly. So Robert Morris's Folly was published, I don't know, maybe eight to 10 years ago now. And it's the story of Robert Morris, the financier of the American Revolution to connect us to 250. And it's the story of how he uses his uh, wealth to start to build a huge French mansion here in Philadelphia, but he ends up in debtor's prison. The house is never finished and in fact is demolished before anyone ever lives in it because it never even gets uh, finished here in Philly. So it's a great read, great book, highly recommend it. Well, that's a hell of a story. And uh, let's look for him on a future episode of PreserveCast. We need to get him on and maybe maybe we'll bring him on and, and uh, we can jointly interview him. That would be kind of fun. That would be great. Um, well, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Be well, stay healthy, and we'll be back again soon with another episode of The Professor and the Practitioner. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.